Metallica, here they come, the kings of metal! listening to Metal Up, your podcast with your host, Clint Wells. All things Metallica. Hey, this is Jay Weinberg from Slipknot. This is Chad Z, roadie for Metallica. Mick Wool. Michael Wagner. Jimmy Clark. Lars Ulrich, drum tech. This is Johnny Z. This is Joe from Bukasa. Adam Dubin, director of Year and a Half in the Life of Metallica. Hey, this is Rob Dietrich, master distiller for Black and American Whiskey. Hey, everybody, I'm Lizzie. And I'm Joe. We're from the band Hailstorm. This is Ray Burton, and you're listening to Metal Up Your Podcast. Oh boy, new intro, shout out to my wife for helping me make that thing. New era, we are saying goodbye to Ethan, I want to thank everybody who wrote some very nice things and uh, sending him off, we will be hearing from them in the email corner, a lot of great discussion in the Discord, you know, I'm passing along everything that I get uh, to him because he needs to know how valuable he was to this ride, everyone wishes him the best, thank you to everyone who sent me a sweet message of support, keeping the train moving. And we're going to just jump right in. This is episode 345. It's a very interesting episode. We'll be talking with William Irwin, who's the author of The Meaning of Metallica, Ride the Lyrics. Uh, Bill, as he prefers to be called by his friends, which we became friends, you will hear on this episode, is a professor of philosophy at King's College in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. He's edited and written books that have sold in the millions, most popularly, and you will have seen these on the shelf, the Philosophy and series, Seinfeld and Philosophy, The Matrix and Philosophy, The Simpsons and Philosophy. In 2007, he published Metallica and Philosophy. Some of you may have read that. Most recently last year, The Meaning of Metallica, Ride the Lyrics, in which Bill breaks down the meaning of some of James Hetfield's most well-written songs, and we get into all of it. Um, I read the book. Uh, Him and his publicist reached out to me about a year ago. They sent me the book, and sometimes it just takes a while. I feel like I've been on the road for the last year. But I finally got around to talking to Bill. Very sweet dude. Very intelligent. Very interesting. He will be coming back on the show. And as you will hear later in the episode, if you stick around, uh, there might even be a future in which Bill and I get our heads together and maybe try to write something about the load and the reload era. So you're going to enjoy getting to meet him. First, we're going to burn through the housekeeping. We've got emails. We've got some exciting giveaway info, as I talked about on the socials this week. First of all, got to say thanks to the patrons. And so we got some uh, some new ones. Helene Marie Berg, who's a friend of mine from Norway, jumped on the Patreon train. Thank you, Hella. Allison Brookheiser increased her pledge. Thank you very much. And my boy, Michael Grovener, has also jumped back on the Patreon train. Michael hosts a wonderful Billy Joel podcast called Glass Houses. And uh, the Venn diagram, there's a Venn diagram there, right? for the music that we all love. If it was 1985 and you played a Billy Joel tape at Ruthie's Inn in California, I mean, what would the consequences? Would you be killed then? Would they have killed you? Probably. I mean, they definitely would have called you a poser. They definitely would have, I don't know, tried to 
slap you with a chain or I, I don't know what was going on then. But these days, it's all a little bit different, right? The amount of people who are excited about what's happening with Taylor Swift, who are in the Metallica community, in the Metal Up Your Podcast community, is exciting to me because good tunes are good tunes. And what she's doing is kind of undeniable. Shattering stadium records, uh, shattering sales records in a time when people aren't buying shit. And if you have, you know, letting your heart become softened and you check it out the way I did during COVID times when she released Folklore on a nondescript midnight during lockdown, then you had your mind blown by the, the I'd heard a few of the hit songs, but Folklore is this melancholic, sad out breakup album, I guess. I don't even know. I wasn't going through a breakup when I heard it. My marriage has been strong as hell. But it reached out and spoke to me. And if you go and pay attention to what she's doing, she's doing multiple nights in the biggest stadiums in the world. And I think she could keep doing them if she wanted to. I mean, I don't know what the ceiling is for her. Anyway, how do we get on that? Billy Joel, Glass Houses. <laughs> so Michael is as devout a Metallica fan as I've ever met. And yet he also is having some really good conversations over there about the one and only Billy Joel, the piano man. So go check that out if that's up to you. Here's what's cool, what's going on about the Patreon is what I'm going to try to do. Uh, for the rest of the year is, you know, Melody Podcast has always been a podcast that wanted to give back to the community, that wanted to try to do something special, try to, you know, insert value into this thing that we're doing, this conversation that we're all having. And one of the ways that we did that is we've always tried to do giveaways. So what I'm going to try to do for the rest of the year is once a month, I'm going to give away one of these Metallica box sets. I'm going to give one away. And we're going to do it through each tier of the Patreon. All right. So if you want to win one of those box sets, all you got to do is join us on Patreon. You're going to hear a commercial for it. It's a simple way to support the show. Keeps the lights on at Metal Up Your Podcast Industries. Now that it's a one-man show, my workload is doubled to keep this thing going. And I love doing it. It's a labor of love. It's really fun. But the box sets giveaways are just a way for me to try to make it juicy over there. Have some fun. Say thank you. So that's what's going to be going on. Of course, the Master of Puppets box set is, I think it's up to $17 million now. So that one's off the table. And the ones that are still available, I'm going to be purchasing uh, and giving away to patrons. So hop on the ride if you haven't. It's easy. It supports the show. It's five, 10 bucks a month. It'd be like buying me a beer or a cup of coffee, which everywhere I go on tour, I meet you lovely people out there. And you're always buying me cups of coffee and beers. And I love it. But I can't see all of you on tour because that would be impossible. So this is a way for you to do that. Um, I'm also going to be kicking back up the pick contest. Now, if you're OG, if you've been on the ride, uh, you'll remember what the pick contest is. If you leave me a positive review for Metal Up Your Podcast on iTunes, um, I'm going to send you some new 72 Seasons inspired Metal Up Your Podcast guitar picks for your collection. Tried to put the abrev on collection. I didn't really think it through. Not great. Uh, but I, it's as simple as if you remember those days, I'm going to go look at the reviews at the end of July. There's going to be, I don't know, hopefully a million. But let's say that there are 15 positive reviews. You're going to write your review. I'm going to write your name down. I'm going to announce that list of names on a subsequent episode. You write into the show with your address. And then I send you some lovely, probably one of a kind guitar picks. I'm going to have, I've had these picks. I've already drafted them up, having them made. They're already in the process, babies. And when they're gone, they're gone. And so you can be a part of that just by leaving the positive review. Easy to do, free, doesn't cost you nothing but a little bit of your time. 
And it goes a long way because there's a lot of podcasts out there. There are a lot of Metallica podcasts out there. And when people are looking for the podcast to listen to, they're going to look at those reviews. You do it. I do it. We all do it. So that goes a long way. Now, those of you that have been leaving the reviews and been helping out for a long time who want those picks also, I'm going to work it out for you guys to get some too, if you want them. So don't fret. Daddy's going to take care of you. I don't know why I'm calling myself daddy. That's weird. I'm going to stop doing that uh, immediately. Okay. We have a Discord. What's a Discord? Go check the Discord out. It's basically a message board. It's a community hang online that people from all over the world are on. So there's always someone in the UK or in Europe, it's up when we're all sleeping over here in the States. You can make friends, talk about Metallica. There's lots of relationships over there where these people have all even traveled together to go to shows. The link for the Discord will be in the show notes below. And it's free. It's all frizzle. All frizzle over there. I do want to thank Matthew Urbelli and Tim Brown, who have been stepping up to the plate and helping me come up with some new concept, Metal Up Your Podcast art for the new era. And they've been coming through and doing some great work as always. So thank you to them. You'll all be seeing that soon. And the easiest way to get a hold of us has always been the email portal where we are going to suck into now. We're going to hear some thoughts about Ethan leaving. We're going to grieve through it together and we're going to move on together. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be just the way we've always done stuff. So let's kick it now over there and uh, see how everyone's feeling. And then we will be talking to our friend, William Irwin. First email, Natalie Cornell says, Hey, Clint, wanted to send an email to say how much I enjoy the show. I only started listening to the show last month, despite knowing about it for a few years now. I just never got around to putting it on. Finally, in the lead up to Metallica's shows at Download Festival in the UK in June, which I attended and were brilliant as always, you popped up on my suggested podcast on Spotify and I put it on. I mean, I've just given in to Spotify. It's just, what are you going to do? If you've heard us before, which Natalie, it sounds like you're you're catching up. Maybe you're going to hear my what will likely be dated rants about Spotify just because they don't pay the musicians, you know, just watching people who should be making music have to pivot for making music. That's been really sad to see. But I now accept that that's, hey, welcome to the world. And I don't know. I don't even know what this I don't even know what I think. I don't use Spotify. I pay for Apple Music. As a consumer, $10 a month for all recorded music as a consumer is a no-brainer. As a creator, it's, it's just problematic at every end. Go ask any artist if they're happy about it. Maybe Taylor Swift is, but she gets a conjillion streams forever. Anyway, I'm not going to get back on that ride. It's just like with AI. You either adapt to it, learn it. Learn AI, everybody. Learn it. It ain't going away. Great Sam Harris podcast, by the way, recently about the future of AI. He debated this dude, this futurist dude, AI guy, who's real positive about AI, which is nice. It's a nice flavor. This guy's like, look, this is going to make everyone's life great. And he's gamed it all out and he helps develop it. Sam Harris is like, hey, look, this is going to destroy everything that we hold sacred. Which <laughs> is kind of how I've been feeling. It's nice to hear a guy that doesn't really feel that way. Uh, that podcast is called Making Sense with Sam Harris. It is subscription-based. But I think if you write an email and say, hey, I would like it for free, they give it to you for free, which is basically free. Anyway, learn AI. I succumb and I submit to the Spotify and the iTunes gods. And then I get a nice email from Natalie saying that that's how she found out about it. So you know what? Thank you, Spotify. Thank you, Spotify overlords. She says, the first episodes I listened to were the 72 Seasons commentary episodes, and I enjoyed listening to you guys break down the new record, hearing your thoughts and feelings on it. I'm a huge Metallica fan, 
But other than a couple of people, including my wife, who are casual fans, I have no one to geek out with over them. Listening to the podcast has made me feel not alone with regards to my total nerdiness over my love for Metallica. My wife describes me as being a walking Metallica encyclopedia. Nice. I think I would fall into that category too. At least your wife, Natalie, is a casual fan. I will occasionally try to like sneak in a little hero of the day in the car. And she, you know, first 10 bars, she's like, I know what you're doing. I'll try to sneak in a little mama said, you know, maybe a little fade to black at the top. But she knows. At least a casual fan will tolerate an entire album, right? Maybe even watch a DVD with you. Maybe be willing to watch cunning stunts with you. Uh, Natalie goes on to say, only wish I had listened earlier to the podcast. I'm a community midwife. I spend a lot of time in my car driving around between home visits. So I've now gone all the way back to the beginning of the podcast and started listening from there. All I know from that, from people writing in, is that I crunched ice back then. So I'm I'm sorry about the ice crunching. You are inevitably bound to hear. How long did I do that, everybody? I mean, are we talking a year? Are we talking two years of ice cr- I can't even remember. Natalie says, anyway, like the many other emails you're probably getting, I also wanted to say that I was sad to hear Ethan stepping down. Wish him the best in the future. I've not been listening for long, but I love your vibe together and your sense of humor. He will be missed. I'm happy, however, to hear you will be continuing, and I look forward to the future of Metal Up Your Podcast. Have a great week. Natalie from Cambridge, UK. Thank you, Natalie. Welcome to the ride. We're going to be here for a while yet. I've got work to do, okay? Those load and reload boxes aren't going to review themselves, okay? Now, am I shocked that they have not yet reached out to me to consult me about what should be in the box sets? Yes. Are my feelings hurt that James has not personally invited me to his private home in Vail, Colorado to discuss the merits of the load and the reload era? Yeah. Am I a little disappointed that Bob Rock hasn't written me a handwritten letter in some sort of exotic ink that only I can see National Treasure style when I hold up a certain chemical to it? Telling me all about his production techniques, of how the drums have such a great saturated sound, how the guitars are so buttery and crunchy, and how James's vocals, I don't know, seem like they're from another planet. Yeah, little bum, none of those things have happened. And until they do, this train rolls on, baby. Next email, Jesse House. Just wanted to wish Ethan all the best going forward. You guys had great chemistry. He will be missed. Looking forward to future episodes. I have enjoyed the guest co-hosts of the past few episodes. And I know the podcast is in great hands with you still at the helm, Clint. Peace, adios. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you, Jesse. Sweet message. Andrew Belly writes in, hey, Ethan, Clint, and Paul. After reading Clint's post on Patreon and then hearing Ethan's farewell message, I just wanted to write in to say thank you to Ethan for all he's done for us over the last six and a half years. It truly has been an amazing effort and obviously went a long way to metal up your podcast being the best podcast out there. Personally, Ethan, I always found you to be so generous with your time when responding to my emails trying to help set up my Metal Tales the first time we had it locked in, and then also providing me with a Mustaine, Hulkster, Rambo, and Rocky ally. And I'm really going to miss your deep cut dives as you really showed your all-around class as a musician when you did those. I hope the next chapter in your life brings you peace and joy. Most of all, I hope you and your family are all okay. Take care. I look forward to hearing Clint steer the ship. No doubt this will also be done with as much TLC as always. Forever on the ride with the Metal Up Your Podcast family, Andrew Bell's Belly, Melbourne, New Jersey, Australia. Anthony M. writes in, to Ethan, from Glasgow, Scotland, to Nashville, Tennessee, all the very best in everything you do. Thank you for the memories, and I really appreciate every single second you've devoted to this project. To Clint, you got this. 
I almost wanted to add a baby there, even though Anthony did not write baby. I'm on this baby kick, and I have been for a while, and I'll tell you why. When we were touring with Lucero a year and a half ago, two falls ago, Jesus Christ, I don't even know how to do time. Rick Steph, the keyword player for Lucero, and I got very close. Rick Steph is an older cat. He was, if you guys are familiar with the um, wonderful artist Cat Power, who I am a huge fan of and, and have been for a long time. Rick was her band leader. Like Rick was with Cat Power on The Greatest Tour. The Greatest is a one of her albums, not The Greatest Tour ever, but she has an album called The Greatest. They did a tour, The Greatest Tour. And we're touring with Lucero and we're getting into those boys. Uh, fast forward to now, we're all we're all tight. We all have each other's numbers in our phones and we all talk. But when we first started touring, we didn't really know each other well. And you, when you're on a tour, you ease into that stuff. You ease into that sauce. And Rick was kind of quiet guy to himself, you know, and I tend not to bother dudes. I tend not to bother anyone. It's a little thing called treating the world the way you want it to be treated. A little golden rule action. So I kept my distance. And then one day, I think it was Johnny Sword came in. And he said, hey, dude, you should definitely start talking to Rick. He, We were playing a venue where we as the openers did not have the nicest amenities for like restrooms or showers. So Lucero were generously, as they did on many stops of that tour, were letting us use their facilities because they were the headliners. And he said, I just went into the, you know, the green room where Rick was and Rick's watching some horror movie on his iPad. And I asked him about it. Apparently Rick's a big horror movie guy. So I'm like, oh boy, here we go. So of course I walk in, me and Rick start talking about horror movies and immediately we're brothers from another mother. And then we started talking about cat power. And then we started talking about music. And then it's just, you know, it all just rolls downhill from there. Easy. One of the most easy people to talk to and be around. And he had this wonderful thing where he would always say, how you doing, baby? He just called everyone baby. Everyone actually except ladies because no one wants. It's not about making ladies feel weird. It's about just it's a term of affection, right? Especially when you say it to a dude. What's up, baby? How you doing? And man, we just all adopted Rick's vibe from that tour we took it everywhere we went especially me and johnny when we got on the luke combs tour you know we're walking into the stadium with luke combs's like 800 person crew and we're just calling everyone baby we're walking into the chris stapleton camp and catering talking to everybody how you doing baby it just glommed onto us it made us think of rick and i still think of rick all the time which is why i just did that even though you didn't call me baby but anthony says you've got this baby P.S. You've both given me some great memories from laughing uncontrollably on my morning commute on a shitty Scottish winter morning to being cut off from the world, living alone during a pandemic and having your podcast to get me through. Even as recent as May this year, recovering from surgery. He says, sorry, Clint, I missed your gig with Morgan in Glasgow again. Your podcast has been there every single week, making me think, question, love, introspect and laugh. Long may it continue. Long days and pleasant nights, Anthony. Well, thank you, dude. Um... Sorry to hear about your surgery. I hope that all went well. The good news about Glasgow is Morgan and I played an acoustic show there a few months ago. And I think we sold out the room and it was 1,300 tickets. And that was just acoustic. So the market situation for Morgan in Scotland is very good. We will be back very soon with the band. And hopefully I'll get to say hi to you, shake your hand, tell you thank you for the support in the email. Michael Bradley says, good day, how do Trying to catch up on episodes. So much content. So much. I just listened to the first part of the 72 Seasons episode with Paul. I so agree with your thoughts on the album. I can't compare the album with their classics. This is Metallica pushing themselves to do new interesting things. 
pulling from their thrash roots, swinging groovy choruses per Black Album, and moody verses like Load and Reload, it's a lot to take in all at once. So far, I'm having the same experience with this album as I did with Hardwired. It's taken me time for the songs to grow on me, but the more I listen, the more I love it. The first time I heard Crown of Barbwire, I didn't like it, but now that song is one of my favorites. It has so much attitude. I also agree that they're doing it better than their peers. Anyway, I could keep going, but I'll wrap it up by saying how much I enjoy listening to you guys talk about my favorite band. Thanks for all the hard work y'all put into the show. Looking forward to listening to part two. Peace. Michael Bradley, Lebanon, Tennessee, New Jersey. He's up in my neck of the woods in New Jersey. That is one of the things that I have loved ever since I was a kid about music, and it, it just never fails. In fact, it's happened so much that I can almost call it a rule, at least for me. And that is the songs that you don't like, like a visceral dislike. Sometimes if you hang in there, will become one of your favorite songs. I don't know what magic spell is at play there. I don't know what's going on. Only that the worst thing that you can do when you respond to a piece of art is be bored by it, is not care, is go, eh, whatever. It's not horrible, but I don't love it. That's the worst. I don't know if there's any coming back from that. But the songs that you're like, ugh, I do not like this song, or something about it just rubs you, that song might become your favorite song. If you get in there with it, spend more time with it because it's rubbing you in the negative and it's getting to you. It's doing something to you. And if it's making you feel something, it's it's worth reevaluating. That's my opinion about that. You guys have all heard me pontificate about that, but I'm telling you it's true. And when people take time to make art, I believe that that stuff deserves um, time when it's being listened to. And I think gut reactions is usually pretty good, but not infallible. And I think that, uh, especially when it's a band that we all love, you got to get in there with them. You got to give it time. They deserve it, I believe. Our last email, Hale Marie Berg, new patron, friend of mine that I've been lucky enough to have a beer with in Norway when we were out that way last summer. Says, Clint, so sorry to hear that you lost your co-host. I'm also very happy to hear that you're going to keep going. This is just a quick check-in as it's been a while. It's been an exciting year this far and it won't stop. The new Metallica album got me excited, as you can imagine. It's the first release I've witnessed as a fan, actually. I love it. Inamorata is my favorite track. This fall, I'm becoming a full-time student again to a master's degree on black metal. I became completely hooked last September, and I just have to go through with this. There's a lot going on in the black metal scene in Norway, and I want to do some research on the position of black metal in Norwegian culture. Hope you're doing great. Hope to see you during Morgan Wade in Oslo. Sending a big bear hug to you and Ethan. Well, very cool. Very cool. Congrats on your journey into becoming, I don't know, an expert on black metal. An educated, a formally educated expert on black metal. Uh, Hello, you'll have to come on the show and tell me all about it. Of course, Norway, I mean, my in my tacit understanding of black metal, Norway's like, that's where all the people are in the woods, right? <laughs> with their faces painted. All the black metal, you know, the guys in the woods with face paint. That's all there. So... What a place to learn all about it. And yes, I will be seeing you in Oslo when we roll through there um, this fall. I will be turning 40 in Europe. Uh, we're going to be all over the place. We're doing all the Scandinavia stuff. We're doing Germany. We're doing the Netherlands, uh, Paris. Well, hopefully we're doing Paris. And I'm excited to see all my friends over there. Thank you to everyone who wrote in. I love you guys. Um, I've passed all of the sweet emails on to Ethan. I'm sure he really appreciates them. The support means the world to me. And I'm excited for you guys to meet Bill Irwin. Really smart cat, really interesting guy. His book is called The Meaning of Metallica. Ride the lyrics. 
We're going to dip into a Patreon commercial, take a quick little break, and then I'm going to introduce you to him. Hope you're all well out there, and I will see you at the end of the conversation to say goodbye, so stay tuned. Hey, everyone. I want to take a moment to tell you about Patreon and how you can help support Metal Up Your Podcast. Patreon is a simple, interactive way to support the people who make the content you love. Metal Up Your Podcast has always been and always will be free. There's no value that can be assigned to this community of music lovers that we've built from all corners of the world. But there are associated costs with running the podcast, in addition to the large amount of time it takes to curate and edit these episodes for all of you. For $5 a month, the equivalent of a cup of coffee or a beer, you can support Metal Up Your Podcast continuing to grow in both quality and frequency. In addition to helping keep Metal Up Your Podcast up and running, becoming a patron also means eligibility to come on the show as a guest for a future Metal Tales episode. The ability to ask guests like Jay Weinberg of Slipknot, Lizzie Hale of Hellstorm, and even members of Metallica's inner circle your very own questions. Merch, vinyl giveaways, ticket giveaways to shows like SNM2 and Sling Castle. It's easy to sign up, easy to use. You can set a price that makes sense for your budget, and all of it goes into making Metal Up Your Podcast the best show it can possibly be. The link to Patreon is in the description of the podcast app you're using to listen to this episode. And as usual, thank you all so much for the support. I could not make this podcast without you. Peace. I can't talk about it anymore. It's giving me a headache. Here, take two of these. Ah, new print. Little, yellow, different. Well, welcome to the show, Bill Irwin, the author of the Metallica book, The Meaning of Metallica, Ride the Lyrics. Bill, thank you for being here today. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to a knucklehead like me about Metallica. Oh, th- thank you, Clint. It's a pleasure to speak with you as someone who is a real musician because I-, I focus on lyrics, but when it comes to what notes they're playing and what's going on musically, it's a pleasure to hear from people like you. Yeah, I was going to ask you, so no musical background. No, I, I can't carry a tune. I sing in the shower, and uh, it, it's kind of funny that uh, I never picked up a, a guitar or a bass or tried to bang a drum because almost all of my friends growing up did, but somehow somehow I haven't, and I, I don't have a great musical uh, knowledge or vocabulary. I think, honestly, that gives you a unique perspective, particularly when analyzing the lyrics, because when I started playing music, I always loved music, and I won't bore you with my origin story, but when I did start to learn it, it definitely changed, for better or worse, how I hear music, and I'm more prone these days to hear the guitar chord or the the studio trick or the reverb on the vocal. I feel like my wife can be similar. She hones in on different things because she's not a musician, and so... The older I've gotten, the more I actually find that that point of view more interesting. Well, you have to take a weakness and turn it into a strength somehow, right? And <laughs> I mean, it's funny that you mentioned that. I'm a big Ozzy fan in addition to Metallica, and he doesn't play an instrument. And uh, th- there have been people, I mean, you know, there are plenty of Ozzy haters and bashers, but who have said that he has, uh, you know, a very unique take on on music and and what he does contribute to the songwriting process precisely because he's not a trained musician so uh, that you have to take your uh, your weakness and make it a strength right yeah i feel like i've actually been quite talented at that my whole life somehow taking all of my weaknesses (laughs) 
Yeah, it makes me think too of the you know there's some great producers like Rick Rubin, of course, comes to mind. Uh, Jimmy Iovine that have made some of the you know most cherished records of the last forty years who don't play instruments. You know, that's right. I mean, Rick Rubin is a mystery how he does what he does without having any. I always suspect somebody like when somebody's running a hospital and they're not a doctor, I'm like, shouldn't you be a doctor and then be running this place? But sometimes it really works out. Rick Rubin. Absolutely. I think for some, in a case like Rick Rubin, it might even be a mystery to him how he's doing it. Sometimes it seems like he doesn't even know. So you mentioned you're a big Sabbath guy. I mean, it's clear. I, one of the things I also really loved in your book, which I read this morning, lovely read. Thank you uh, for sending it to me. I know it took us a long time to get reconnected, but well, thank you for reading it. Not everybody I talk to has actually read it. So I uh, appreciate your professionalism and interest that way. And, you know, a, a wait is fine. I'm glad to talk with you. Yeah, I burned it all down this morning. It was a very enjoyable, pleasant read. I'm particularly interested in the subject matter, which made it, you know, a fun morning. But there's a lot of really fun other references in music. And you do mention Sabbath quite a bit. You talk about, you, you make references to Nativity and Black and War Pigs and tie it all into Hetfield. So what is your musical background? I mean, you mentioned, I want to talk about it later. You tell a really great story about actually seeing Hetfield in 86. Oh, yeah. But it sounds like you do have like a, were you a hard rock kid? What, what's your oh, story yeah. with music growing up? Yeah, so uh, I, I'm 53, born in 1970. So, you know, Beavis and Butthead before Beavis and Butthead was a thing. That was me and my friend Joe, you know, 12, 13 year old kids getting into ACDC and Ozzy and uh, then Maiden and Priest and, uh, you know, then eventually about 1984, finding uh, Metallica and Slayer kind of came along a little bit later than that for me and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I grew up total metalhead in the early 80s. So really from an early age, uh, metal was what I looked to for probably the therapy that I needed. And uh, instead of reading some books, maybe that I should have, I was looking at uh, the lyrics. And so that that's kind of my origin story for what it's worth. Well, who needs a, uh, you know, Hemingway when you have for whom the bell tolls on ride the lightning, who needs to read Exodus when you have creeping death. I it's mean true. And, and you know what? Uh, Maiden's rhyme of the ancient Mariner ruined the original for me uh, <laughs> because I, you know, that was actually the first concert I ever saw was Maiden on the uh, the Power Slave tour and Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, uh, I'm listening to and, and loving, and then I go to read the poem, I'm like, oh, this is kind of boring compared to what they've got going on. Totally. There's not a guy dressed up on stage who looks like a demon. <laughs> nope. So I'm interested in, so if you were born in 70, by the time you're 9, 10, when this stuff's getting real important, that's New Wave of British Heavy Metal. Metallica comes out in 82, 83 with thrash, kind of a different thing. It's, it's new wave of British heavy metal, but with kind of punk aesthetic. Did you immediately like it or did you take some convincing? No, it, it took a little bit of convincing. I mean, my gateway album was Ride the Lightning. I had never heard Kill Em All until after Ride the Lightning. So uh, right away, that makes me a poser in some people's eyes, <laughs> you know, if you go back far enough. Uh, but uh, I, I remember I, I used to listen to a college radio station uh, out of Long Island, 88.1 WCWP. It's still active. And uh, they would play metal on the weekends. And I remember Ride the Lightning coming out, uh, I think, summer of 84. And uh, it didn't click with me for sure. Uh, I was like, oh, what is this? A little too fast, a little too something. But then by the fall and, and winter, uh, my friend Joe, Beavis to my butthead, 
had gotten uh, the album and, uh, you know, as we did back then, uh, made me a cassette tape of it. And, uh, well, the rest is history from there, I guess. Yeah, you write in the beginning of the book, you kind of, you know, we have the same trepidation dealing with talking about Metallica on a podcast of you're you're combating with what we call the truths or an idea, a gatekeeping aspect. And you kind of try to knock it out in the beginning. You talk about getting that cassette tape. But I like what you wrote. You said, I wasn't there from the beginning with Metallica, but they were there from the beginning with me, which I thought was really cool. I mean, I didn't really come online until the Black Album. So you can imagine... If, you know, if you were getting grief for like and ride the lightning, imagine me, a kid that just really liked Inner Sandman and then had to work my way back, you know? It's amazing, as you know from doing this podcast, the way that different generations of fans, not like literal 20-year uh, generations, but every four or five years or less than that, there would be a new generation of Metallica fans. And so often it's the album that you heard first that was new for you that that really becomes your favorite or or the indelible one and you know this from uh saint anger fans i mean there are plenty of them for whom that that's their favorite album uh right. and i don't mean to you know to trash the album it's not my favorite but uh Every Metallica album has done that. Did you, I mean, what made you want to do a book about the lyrics? I know you have a previous book that you co-edited, The Philosophy of Metallica, and you have a whole series of these books that I, that I read have sold over a million copies, so you have a lot of success exploring those ideas. What made you want to dive into the lyrics? Yeah, yeah, so uh, thanks for mentioning that and asking. I'm, I'm a philosophy professor by trade. And I have this whole uh, series of books on uh, and philosophy, starting with Seinfeld and The Simpsons and The Matrix and uh, a whole catalog of them, including Metallica and philosophy. That wasn't enough for me. And actually, this book, The Meaning of Metallica, right, the lyrics, uh, I mentioned therapy before, uh, started as a sort of therapy for me. I had uh, run into a professional setback, as everyone does, and uh, just started writing uh, about this book called uh, Educated, which was about Tara Westover. She was a fundamentalist Mormon and uh, her kind of breaking out of that, uh, that world and, and becoming uh, formally educated. But anyway, I'm writing about that and I'm quoting a lot of uh, Metallica in what I'm writing. And uh, eventually it turned into something about Metallica and not about that book that I thought I was writing about and uh, that little piece felt so good to me and so cathartic that I just kept going and set out to write a book about Metallica's lyrics, although certainly I, I think it's a, a worthy subject, uh, but it just kind of happened. Yeah, you talk in the credits about a piece you wrote ended up in Psychology Today. Would that be something that would end up in the book or at least was an inspiration that ended up in the book? Yeah, yeah. So I was writing the original piece for Psychology Today and it was going to be about this book, uh, Tara Westover is Educated. What I wrote never ended up in Psychology Today. It you know, basically uh, turned into this book, although uh, a little snippet of what's in the book was published on Psychology Today's website, piece about the... Uh, song from hardwired confusion do you focus on anything in particular when you teach philosophy or is it just sort of a general overview i'm a philosophy kind of amateur nerd oh wow read all the freud stuff like you mentioned civilizations and its discontents and i was like oh yeah, hell yeah. yeah there we go okay yeah well i i earn most of my keep 
teaching a lot of introduction to philosophy and basic courses, but my, my sort of scholarly interests and what I get to teach sometimes uh, is uh, existentialism. So philosophers like Nietzsche and Sartre and uh, Heidegger and... Uh, Kierkegaard at all? Yeah, Kierkegaard. I just taught a course on existentialism with Kierkegaard as the, pretty much the starting place. And I teach East, Eastern philosophy, so some Buddhism and Taoism and Confucianism and some philosophy of art. But yeah, that, that's pretty much my bread and butter. Well, you jump right into the <laughs> chapter one. So for people who may not have read the book yet, each chapter is sort of a main idea and then songs that are tied into a thread. Chapter one is religion. And so you, you know, I think listeners will be able to guess that Creeping Death, Leper Messiah are focal points, the God that failed. And I was impressed with that. I mean, that's, you know, I, everyone who listens to the show will know that I'm an atheist. And, uh, but I don't talk about it much because a lot of people who listen aren't. And it's not really that important, or at least as important to me now as it was maybe in my 20s. And there's a lot of interesting religious imagery throughout James Hetfield's lyrics. You know, it's about, you see a definitely a transition from angry and critical up through a little more, I don't know, a little more, I mean, you talk about it with his stints with sobriety. A lot of people who get sober end up needing a higher power. And it's been fascinating to, to watch it. But you focus on kind of the first, you know, the younger James, the creeping deaths, the leper messiahs, frustration with hypocrisy obviously with how it had contact with his family his mom unfortunately passing away because of her religious beliefs not allowing her to take medicine and i thought you threaded that needle really well i mean was that were you consciously saying look i'm going to come out hot in this book with a very <laughs> controversial topic i mean what were you thinking about that where were you coming from yeah, that's funny that, that you ask about the, the beginning that way. It, it's one of the longer chapters, uh, as is the one that, that follows. And I didn't originally have it at front. And uh, one of the people I, I thank in the acknowledgments, I'll give a shout out to Joanna Corwin, said that she liked that and that, that should lead off. And uh, but, but it is, yeah, I mean, uh, from some people who I've heard from, there are plenty of Metallica fans who are religious uh, and uh, committed Christians and that kind of thing. And and many of them even friends of mine, you know, so I always try to be respectful of that, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. Being in Nashville, for sure, right? I mean, uh, yeah. yeah, and I, I want to come across as, uh, and I am sincerely respectful as well. Like you, I'm, I'm an atheist, but, you know, that, that doesn't have to be a big part of, uh, of any kind of conversation or friendship. And uh, it's very intriguing, uh, as you mentioned, with, uh, with Hetfield. I don't know that he was ever uh, an atheist, but he certainly was rejecting uh, the God that failed, uh, which, you know, was the God of his upbringing in, uh, in Christian science. And, uh, you know, was obviously very suspicious of organized religion. Maybe I've missed it, but I, I don't think he's really uh, addressed the idea of religion or higher power in any kind of clear way since those earlier days, although it seems to have become potentially more important to him personally. You can tell by some of the tattoos, a Jesus tattoo and some praying hands and that kind of thing. And so, uh, I mean, I, and I appreciate that, that he plays it close to the best on the religion issue as well as politics. I mean, anything that, that's, that's written political is always 
you know, open to interpretation and, and not framed in terms of a political, uh, a current event that, that makes it dated or anything like that. So Yeah, you deal with that pretty well, too, in a, in a later chapter, and we'll get to that as well. The only thing I've noticed with him, you know, in the last 10, 15 years is he, but I feel like I've done it too, as I've gotten older, I'm turning 40 this year, I've got a kiddo, got an eight-year-old, and he, he uses language that maybe would have offended me in my 20s, where he says, he'll say things like, you know, writing these songs to try and help people is what what I'm here to do. It's my calling from God, or he talks about being thankful to be alive, and he tends to attribute that to a kind of a vague higher power, which I've even started to use language like that. And I don't mean it in the way that it's meant like, in, you know, in our sacred text, I just mean it like yeah. you know, big ideas that human beings can latch on to. I'm, I'm fond of saying when I do have shortcomings, I can only be what God made me, you know, like. Right. I think even there, he's kind of careful. One of the things that he says that I like is that he wants to be of service. Yes. Uh, you know, and you can construe that as being of, of service to a higher power or something like that. But he, but he doesn't quite say that. And uh, we'll probably get into uh, addiction and that sort of thing as well. I'm sober myself uh, a good bit longer than uh, than Hetfield uh, was and, and is hopefully again now. You know, frankly, you, you can hear some of the language of, uh, of recovery that comes through when he says things like that. And when you spend a lot of time in recovery rooms, you learn to speak uh, a kind of a language uh, that you don't necessarily mean literally, you know, if you're an atheist like I am. Yeah, I mean, I've always used it. Yeah, I mean, it's like saying that, look at that beautiful sunset. I mean, you know, we know that that's not really how, you know, the sun doesn't move. We revolve around the sun, but still we say the sunrise, the sunset. There's like a poetic language that's just useful when talking to fellow people about like the stories of our lives, right? Like our life's kind of told through stories and those stories help us make sense of it. And I've really mellowed out in that way. That's right. Think about the language of soul too, which we use so much in talking about music, right? right. You don't need to literally believe there is uh, a kind of non-physical part of you that might survive your death to talk about uh, a soul, right? And having soul. I mean, it's so much part of the culture and language you'd be foolish to, to censor yourself that way. Totally. Uh, or to call something soulful, you know, meaning to yes. say that it's, it's moving to you. One of the things you point out in the book that I like a lot is that these criticisms of religion are really subtle. And in a time when maybe a band like Slayer, where Carrie King obviously very much hates the idea of religion and, and, and it's a huge part of it, or even something like Sabbath, where it's like Lucifer spreads his wing. It's just really you know, on the nose imagery that's, in my opinion, pretty harmless. I get why it probably scared parents, but Metallica always, other than that jump in the fire demon guy that was on some of the artwork, they really never did the the satanic, you called it faux Satanism, which I thought was funny. Like, does anyone in the world think that Vince Neil worships the fucking devil? I don't think so. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think I think it was a conscious decision on Hetfield's part early on that he was going to avoid cliches, at least certain cliches uh, of heavy metal, and that was one of them. I mean, he was a big Venom fan. Venom is you know over the top cartoony Satanism. Merciful Fade as well, yeah. Merciful Fade as well, right? But that it just wasn't going to go that way. It had been done before as well as like misogyny and, you know, hot chicks and, uh, you know, that sort of stuff. I and mean, it's like, yeah, there's a place for that, but it's been so done to death that, uh, 
and I just think he's such a craftsman in, in everything that he does. And, and you know well, as a, as a musician in ways that most people can't, that if he was going to do lyrics, and, and I think he probably would have been happy in this life if he never had to write lyrics or never sing for that matter. He was going to do it well yeah. uh, and do it in a way that he could feel proud of. I think a really great example of what you're talking about, especially when it comes to the tropes of the hot chicks and stuff, is the Four Horsemen previously the mechanics by mustaine and from what i i'm not a huge megadeth guy so but from what i glean the, the mechanics is kind of a euphemistic sex thing and it hetfield sort of took it and said actually i'm going to make it this huge apocalyptic doom you know themes of biblical themes and stuff you know like definitely taking it away from that yeah if you ask me I, i'm not much of a megadeth guy uh, you know, I like the first couple of albums, that kind of thing. Uh, and apologies to anybody who's a huge Megadeth fan that I'm going to offend. But the difference between Mustaine and Hetfield boils down to, to what he did with that song. I mean, just absolutely amazing from, from a, uh, a childish, uh, you know, string of bad puns about sex to something, uh, that he picked up on. Mustaine's rhythm playing and the galloping sound of that song and the, that music and crafted lyrics that were uh, appropriate to it. And as far as, you know, heavy metal fantasy stuff goes, that, that's about as good as it gets. And it, too, can be, t I mean, it's drawing on something he uh, was force-fed as a kid with religion and scripture and putting it to a different kind of use where it, it becomes uh, something that's ominous and, and metal and scary and, and even in the right way taken as, listen, how could it possibly be true? It's the stuff of uh, silly, scary, uh, heavy metal songs. Man, that is so true, which is kind of the vibe of Creeping Death also. You know, you talk about how he's telling the story of the Ten Commandments, but in a way, and with all the viciousness of the voice of, you talk about basically unreliable narrator stuff, which that's one of my favorite tropes in lyric writing. Randy Newman's like my hero of unreliable narration and songs, but how he embodies the viciousness of a god that would do that you know that would kill everyone's firstborn and harden the pharaoh's heart so that, that he could keep sending plagues and not to mention how the plagues were probably affecting the israelites who were also living there and then as a way to subtly kind of expose how tough of a thing it is to believe that an all-powerful and all-loving god would do that It's actually like really smart when you think about it that way. And I'm tempted to think he got lucky 
and that he he just wrote a kind of a badass sounding song about Goshen. But then when he keeps doing it, like you, like you just said, like he did with Four Horsemen, it just the chances of it being him being lucky just shrink. And it's like, man, this guy really was tapping into something lyrically that is so different and it's probably a key to like their enduring success. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. I mean, it is easy to, to write off any particular song as, well, you're making too much of it. Come on, philosophy professor, you know? Uh, and he's not a highly educated guy. Right. Uh, but he is very smart. Uh, and he's got a, a poet's ear. You know, he, he uh, when, when you look at the lyrics, as I, as I do in the book, you find small little word changes and shades and change in narration uh, that don't occur accidentally uh, when it's just kind of something that's a one-off that you wrote quickly. You, you know, as yourself as a musician, you you know, you may have a quick inspiration, uh, but generally you've got to work it through and refine it uh, to really get it right. And and most of the lyrics or many of the lyrics really do show that kind of craftsmanship when you put them under the microscope. And I would, one of the benefits of listening to, you know, hearing all the music with it too in an analytical way that's positive is there's several other layers beyond that where the phrasing of it, like phonetically how it works. I mean, a lot of times artists will sacrifice clarity in a lyric or profundity in a lyric because it sings well or it feels good to say a certain way or it matches the drums. He is, you know, you can really tell he thinks about it all the way through. And you, you rightly mention at another point in the book that he tends to write all the lyrics last, which I think helps. You know, he tends to let the music have its own kind of powerful identity, which is a really unusual way to write. A lot of people do not do that. And there's a lot of bands I love that don't have really profound lyrics, like Red Hot Chili Peppers comes to mind. It doesn't matter. That that band's more about a feeling and who cares what he's talking about. But with Metallica, you really kind of get the best of all of it. In my, like One of the lyrics that you rightly point out is one of the better ones and from this chapter, which we'll move on from in a second, but The God That Failed, which is just one of my favorite couplets he's ever written. He says, broken is the promise betrayal, the healing hand held back by the deep and nail follow the God That Failed. That's just good shit on a page. Let alone, oh, yeah. let alone how he pockets it in that chorus. It's just so reinforced and powerful. And that's just one of many times that he does that. And I don't think you're going to find uh, with a, now I'm going to set myself up for being wrong. But I think if you Google deepened nail, uh, I don't know if anybody in the history of the language has ever used that phrase before, yeah. uh, which is an amazing kind of thing to come up with a coinage that way. If he heard it or read it somewhere else, good for him having a poet's ear and picking it up. Right. Because, you know, I've never heard it or read it anywhere else. Uh, and I think he he came up with it on its own, and it's just so poetic. It's amazing. It really is. I think that segues a little bit. The next chapter is You Have His Addiction, which is a huge theme of his work. And I think one of the big problems of St. Anger is that his first time that we know of coming out of a rehab sitch, the language of what he probably learned in that six months um, where they 
you know, I've got people that have gone through the program and you, they kind of have to tear you down and you have to realize that you need some help. And all that language comes through a little too much on the album for me. It's a little too raw. But I do think other than that, he did a pretty good job of what we're saying, even with the religion thing. Like my favorite, actually my favorite part of the book is in chapter two, when you break down house that Jack built. Oh, um, I love that song. I know you're a big load era guy. So yeah. Yeah. Everyone that listens is like, of course, Clint liked that. But the reason that I liked it so much though, is because there's actually a good chunk of material that you wrote about that song. And yeah. I knew that song was about alcohol. You rightly say it could have been called the house that Jack Daniels built. But man, the way that you really turn over those lyrics, I found so fascinating. And it really juxtaposed coming from the uh, it's chapter two. So chapter one was Creep and Leper and God That Failed. But it really juxtaposed how strange isn't the right word, but like visceral and kind of otherworldly the lyrics got in that era, which is one of the reasons that I like it so much. It's like a lot of the 80s stuff is more like I'm looking around and telling you what I see. But House of Jack Bill is like all about his dark kind of internal world. And I got to imagine that for you writing the book, was that maybe a little more fun to explore? in a Because Creeping Death, you're basically just going through Exodus and kind of pointing out how smart he was to phrase certain things. But How's It Jack Build is like a total character study. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it's very personal for me, having lived through, uh, you know, active alcoholism and, and, and recovery and, and just knowing quite well uh, from a first-hand perspective what he's describing in the in the lyrics and the way in which you know uh, let the show begin close my eyes uh, you know find my place to hide and and just the way he takes you through the kind of uh, hopelessness of it uh, and the cyclical nature of it I mean it's it's a, a nesting song hmm. uh, and it, it has its roots in a in a kind of child's nursery rhyme the house that Jack built and but the the nesting of it you know and what I mean by that is like the uh, you know swallow the fly to catch the this uh, I forget how that nursery rhyme but that's the basic idea of the house that Jack built and and what he captures in that is just the way in which uh, you know, it's this endless cycle, uh, and it's so predictable, and you should be able to break yourself out of it, but you find you can't. Here's an example of kind of how you talk. This is just one small excerpt. You say, the verse concludes with another question. Is that you there or just another demon that I meet? The narrator is haunted by past misdeeds, people he's wronged. We can imagine him separated from his drinking companions, lost in the back alleys of his own mind, unable to see straight. The effect of chewing on regret becomes borderline hallucinatory as he muses on whether it's some phantom of his mind or a real person who emerges from the streetlight. Like... That was beautiful, you know, and you talk about the, there's the line about whether he's confusing the streetlight for the moon and 
I don't know. It's very, very haunting stuff. And I believe in that chapter, you said, and of course, this is just speaking all to my heartstrings of Metallica. You segue into Low Man's lyric. Oh, yeah. And you camp out there. And, you know, I've always interpreted that song as sort of some sort of infidelity thing. Well, I think infidelity is probably part of it, right? I mean, uh, it, it seems to me, right, that the guy is uh, is potentially both the, the addict and uh, what is the addict. I mean, and this, you know, quite frankly, uh, filters into Hetfield's own story, right? Where he, uh, he's not talked much about it, right? I mean, he's divorced now, and uh, it seemed there were real marital troubles that led him, uh, you know, into into rehab. And you can, you know, you know well the temptations of the road uh, for a rock star. But so, so not only are you dealing with your alcohol addiction or, or other addiction, but also giving way to other temptation and being like this, uh, you know, this dog that returns in the rain, you know, will you take me back in and that kind of thing. What do you attribute the lyrical change to? Is it him getting older? Because also I think that he never really went back. The load and reload era to me kind of represents a unique phase of writing for him. And he never really returned to it, uh, which is for better or worse. I mean, he's always seemed to be an artist that was moving forward. Each album seems like a progression. But what do you think was going on? Is it just is it just a you know a man in his mid thirties who's creatively on fire? Is it him listening to more Tom Waits? Do you think there's an easy way to explain the delineation of those lyrics? I think you're right. I mean, I, I think the uh, the Black Album had turned introspective uh, in many ways with songs like My Friend of Misery and Struggle Within and uh, that kind of thing. So I think you have real uh, precursor there. Uh, and, you know, from the Playboy interview, uh, he reflects on the on the load uh, era that, you know, I mean, he, he tried to, to quit drinking for a period of time there. He was in therapy, there were marriage problems. Yeah, I mean, he's not a kid anymore. He's got a house, uh, you know, he's got family, all that kind of thing. So it's natural to be introspective, uh, although, you know, I don't think it's the first time. And I really don't think it's the, the last either. I mean, we'll, we'll get to talking, I'm sure. But I think Death Magnetic uh, has some real introspection there. And, and I think 72 Seasons is, uh, is totally uh, introspective. A lot of people believe that 72 Seasons is kind of a return to a load era stuff. And I'm coming around to it slowly. That's, it's been a very interesting journey with me with the new album in a positive way. Definitely want to get your thoughts on that. So you were a kid that got on the ride with Lightning. You went all through the 80s when the Black Album, Load, Reload, Cut Their Hair, Play With the Symphony stuff was happening. What were you, you know, were you on that ride too? Were you disappointed? Where did you fit in all that? 
Uh, you know, I had my ups and downs, right, as most people would. And, and pretty much anything that I say about that uh, will offend somebody out there who thinks that was the greatest this or that, right? Oh, yeah. You can't escape it. You're going to, you can't escape it. So I just try to push through it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, so uh, I, I loved the Black Album. Uh, I actually liked it better than uh, Just Injustice for All, which sounded very sterile to me. I mean, uh, the lack of the bass and, and that kind of thing. Uh, and so I was fine with the Black Album, uh, but the, the, the Load Albums, it, it took me more time. I mean, there were always tracks on there that I really liked, and I didn't begrudge them a change in style, although hairstyle I did begrudge them a change in. And uh, it was just the time, uh, you know, for anybody who didn't really live through it, when metal uh, needed them and it felt like they weren't there, you know, it felt, uh, it felt like I, I need the superheroes to come in and save the day from everything else that's going on with, you know, poser hair metal and, and grunge and that kind of thing. And I mean, little did I know uh, because I wasn't really into this, but there was a, a burgeoning, you know, no pun intended underground and in death metal and black metal and that kind of stuff. So, you know, metal was, was alive and well if you knew where to look, but uh, that was a long way of answering that. I, I, you know, I, I wasn't thrilled with, the, with a lot of, uh, of the Load album uh, and, and Reload, but I, I found things on it that I really liked. Uh, and I, I agree with your sentiment that uh, it's really some of the best lyric writing uh, that he did. And, and I'm a lyrics guy, so, so there you go. I like the answer. I actually heard something in that answer that I haven't really thought of before, which was the idea that if you were of a certain age, really liked metal music, Metallica, the ambassadors of that music, the heroes of that music, and that time musically feeling like, oh, we really need that. It reminded me of a Billy Corgan had an interview just recently where he was talking about hanging out with the Pantera guys who were, I guess, as befuddled as anybody about their change in style. And he said he was backstage with them and they were they were bemoaning it. He said they weren't really talking shit about it. They just loved those guys and just didn't understand it. And Billy Corgan tells a story that's really more self-serving for himself. That's He's the one who told them, hey, you guys are the best metal band in the world now. Look at it that way. And just, you guys go be the heroes, you know? Like he shook them out of their whatever. But to think of it in that way actually makes me feel a little more sympathetic to people that struggle with the material. Yeah, well, I mean, think about it. I mean... uh Priest isn't really going on. Maiden isn't really going on. You know, Ozzy's had a big hit with No More Tears. And it's like, all right, that's kind of commercial. But there really was a feeling, you know, and that's a great uh, story that you have about the Pantera guys having that kind of reaction to it. I know a lot of, a lot of me and my friends felt that. I was like, oh, I kind of needed you. And you're Sort of, I mean, and it, it, I, I think of them, I mean, uh, it's pathetic in a way as, as friends, uh, you know, even though <laughs> they're not, it's a pretty one way uh, relationship. But it's I like do it too, though. Sort of being disappointed by, by uh, a friend who changed, you know, uh, in a t- at a time uh, when emotionally I really needed you not to change. I'm struck by um, the amount of responsibility that the band, but James in particular, must have felt artistically needing to change or just even just as a him just being bored with it. They talk about the Justice songs were so damn long that they were like, we just wanted to play shorter songs live. But 
I mean, the amount of pressure on someone like him to, you know, to have to carry people like me and you, knuckleheads like me and you who needed them. <laughs> right. Because it may be a one-way relationship, but it's real. And he had it with ACDC and, and his, whatever his, his versions were, early Aerosmith and Deep Purple. Yep. He's always struck me as a guy that always kind of remembered what it was like to be a fan. Oh, yeah. And that was what was so attractive uh, about them early on, right? I mean... I didn't think of it as a punk rock aesthetic, but it, it was, right? And the, the kind of punk rock attitude that, you know, fuck your heroes or fuck your idols. And, uh, you know, I, I dress just like my fans do. And I wear rock t-shirts of bands I like on stage and all of that. You know, that was so important. You talk about being a 16-year-old kid in Meadowlands and wherever the, however it was set up, you could see their tour bus, which I've been on both sides of this exact thing. I don't know yeah. if there was a fence or a gate. And you said you were 15 feet away from him, but you could see the power was emanating. And one of the things that you mentioned was the scowl on his face and what it communicated to you was, and he was 23 at the time, was like, this guy really is going through it. This guy is in pain. He's doing what he can to fight his way out of it. And he's doing that. And just how that must have resonated with you and kids everywhere. Yeah, I, I, I'm back there in a, in a moment, you know, I mean... It's hard, of course, when uh, a memory is that old to uh, to sort out what what really uh, you saw and what your your imagination has conjured. Have you ever read any David Shields? No. He has a great quote. He says, "Anything that passes through memory becomes fiction." Yeah, absolutely right. So it's yeah. fiction, right? But uh, like any picture, you would have seen him uh, like on the back of the the Master of Puppets LP, where they just kind of stand in there. Uh, with flannels and uh, and t-shirts and ripped jeans, like with the scowl on, you know, looking looking metal tough. You know, that wasn't really for the camera. That was that was really the way it looked, and and the scowl uh, and the look and all that was so impressive because uh, by contrast, you had Lars smiling. And uh, I mean, I, I my memory, fictional, although it may be, is that the other guys are smiling and there's something kind of goofy looking about Cliff Burton. Uh, <laughs> but uh, and, and they're they're signing autographs and all of that. And Hetfield is out there only for a short time, but it's like, you could just feel it. You could feel it. He's the real thing. This is not bullshit. You know, what I'm feeling about him when I listen to those songs is, is really uh, who this guy is. Uh, and he gets back on the bus and the other three are out there signing autographs and things like this. Curiously, since you ask about the story, I, I, I recently saw the guy I was, I was stranded, stuck in the parking lot with my friend uh, Eugene. And uh, he, uh, a little bit more aggressive than me, took his ticket stub. This was after the concert, right? We're stranded. He took his ticket stub and, and got autographs on it from Kirk, Lars, and Cliff. And, uh, well, there's no Hetfield to be found. So he, he corroborated my uh, recollection there. Uh, and there's a sad note to the story in that in the, uh, the financial downturn of 2008, uh, he took that uh, autographed ticket stub and sold it on eBay, <laughs> on eBay, and he wishes he had it back. Well, you know, one way you could look at it is that ticket gave him a way out of a jam 
years later and uh the love yeah. got passed on you know but that he had to take it out of a jam that's a good way to look at it i'm curious because you're an aussie guy so it's 86 you're seeing i mean one of the coolest tours ever i mean that's one of the time machine let, let me set the record straight on that okay. uh, metallica did not blow ozzy off the stage not even close well i was going to ask who were you there to see primarily were you there to see ozzy prime i mean primarily ozzy but i mean as close to a second uh as metallica could get uh you know that 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 was you know they, they i was in love at that point but you're saying ozzy was still deserved to be the headliner absolutely no question and th- this is at the meadowlands in in new jersey uh no offense to nashville but it wasn't nashville that that you know uh metallica had fully penetrated the metal community there at the time it wasn't like uh, people were like who is this Certainly, there were some real hardcore people who were there primarily for Metallica, but the the bulk of the crowd was there for Ozzy. The arena was maybe two-thirds or three-quarters full for Metallica, which was very good for an opening band, but it's not like some of the stories that you may uh, that you may hear all right so you talk about being a kiddo and how important james hetfield is like a looming figure was you wrote this in the book this is chapter six which is the justice chapter so you covered don't tread on me eye of the beholder phantom lord four horsemen which by the way i'm making spotify and itunes playlists that will be in the description below this episode where you can jam all these tunes as you read the book which is i started jamming the tunes a little bit when i was reading today which was a fun experience oh that's awesome but you say this you say this is speaking about early Metallica being so important for a certain kind of person. You say, Kill em All was unparalleled in its appeal to angry, alienated, suburban, white teenage males, of which you included yourself, for whom life was a struggle despite dwelling in comfortable conditions with no real war to fight. What do you attribute that to? Like, what's going on in that transfer? You know, you talk about how to the kid... James is talking about big themes of God and his parents and death and war. And to the suburban kind of kid, it's parents, school rules. I think that description applies well to the appeal of, of a lot of metal and, and metal generally. It was when, when you're talking about serious metal, it was about rebellion. It was about authenticity. It was about feeling displaced and, and marginalized. I mean, there, there was more like party metal uh, as well, right? I mean, if you think like Van Halen, right? What's playing at the party, uh, especially if you're lucky enough to have some girls there, but it's Van Halen, right? But Metallica and, and other bands like that who are angry and expressing that anger uh, are, are really speaking to, I mean, a, a guy like me who's whatever, early teenager and, uh, well, what am, I, what am I anymore? You know, I mean, you start becoming self-aware, right? And it's become clear to me I'm never going to play ball for the Yankees or the Giants or the There's Knicks. still time. Hey, there's still time. Uh, you know, in my retirement, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, you start to dawn on, hey, maybe, maybe life isn't, maybe I'm not going to marry uh, a Barbie doll. And, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe life kind of sucks, right? Maybe there's not a God, <laughs> you know? Uh <laughs> And here, here you have some stuff that that's angry, alienated, and speaking uh, to that, right? Yeah, that's a little different than everybody wants some, and I want some too. 
<laughs> yeah, although sure, I wanted some too, but right. I really wasn't getting any. And I guess that's what it is. There was like maybe, and I think I felt this in the 90s, honestly, there was a lack of access to a certain kind of life. And a band like Metallica is just going to speak right into that and make you feel like you do belong somewhere, you know, that you yeah. have a tribe. I, I think it's it's a common experience coming of age, you know, whether you're 13, 14, 15, whenever it starts to hit, where you start to become a little disillusioned, uh, you know, about with parents, society, authority, religion, some mixture of uh, of them, right? And geez, what you know? Uh, what am I going to do? You know? Hey, speaking of Van Halen, so you mentioned in the credits, you thank Greg Renoff, who people might have heard me mention, wrote I think couple, but I only read the one, a great Van Halen book called Running with the Devil. This incredible just a, Van Halen book about the, uh, the early the days. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I think it only goes up until the first album, which is wild because. A lot of people don't know that they were kind of a backyard Pasadena party band for so long. That's a different podcast. But you think Greg and you say, Greg, whose books on Van Halen and Ted Templeman, who was the producer of Van Halen and others, I admire connected me with the publisher. Can you briefly tell us kind of like how did your, because there's a whole side of this that I want to talk about too, of like, you have an idea for a book. How do you get from that book, that idea to it's for sale? It ends up in a knucklehead like mine's hands. So can you kind of walk through what that's like? Let's say someone up there wanted to write a book. What do they have to do? How did you meet Greg and how did Greg help facilitate that? Yeah, well, I mean, Greg is uh, is an absolute gem. And yeah, I, 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 let, let me just say, I was, I was not a Van Halen fan growing up, but I heard them constantly. Uh, one of my best friends was, and he had recommended this, uh, this book and I read it, you know, uh, and it's just an incredible book. And, uh, you know, even if you're not a Van Halen fan, so that says something. Agreed. And so, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I connected with him probably through Twitter or something. I looked him up. Uh, people who write books, unless you're Stephen King, are always glad to hear from you, me included for sure. So anybody who's listening and wants to get in touch, Twitter, email, whatever. Uh, and he, he was, uh, you know, an absolute gem. And I said, I love the book. And uh, what do you think? I have this idea for this book. Uh, I had written it pretty much already. Without him connecting me with uh, the publisher, who is ECW uh, out of Canada, I would have had a hard time getting it published, uh, I think, because the publisher who publishes my Anne Philosophy series, Wiley Blackwell, weren't interested in it. Uh, it just didn't fit what they do. You know, it was a single author thing. It didn't fit my series. It wasn't focused totally on philosophy. So, Finding a publisher wasn't necessarily going to be easy, and he, you know, introduced me to Michael Holmes, uh, who it turned out uh, is, you know, the the head of uh, ECW is also a big Metallica fan. So I got lucky in that way uh, by meeting nice people. Did they have any notes for you? Did they did they request any big changes? They were great. You never know what you're going to run into uh, with a publisher. They didn't. Uh, ask for any significant changes and just working all the way through the, the copy editing was great where they find the missing comma fact checking where they found you know a word in a in a line of lyrics was wrong i mean it was just just great and i, I think uh one of the, the one of the guys who uh, was involved in the the copy editing i think turned out to be uh, a Metallica fan too, which always helps uh, if if they have a vested interest in it that way. I saw that you shouted out your wife, who, like most of you know the people in my life, 
our partners are the first line of defense who will tell us the truth, uh, who also will usually staunchly defend us the most. And you said that she read through it, gave you some good feedback, and wasn't even a fan of, of the band, which is saying a lot for you know, her dedication to helping you. It's very cool. It is. I, I, ma- I married well, despite myself. That's my father said to me uh, when I was about to get married that, uh, that I, that he said to me, you couldn't have done any better, but she sure could have. <laughs> I think that's true for a lot of us knuckleheads. Out yeah. here. Okay. I don't want to take up too much of your time. There's a few more points of the book that I really love. So my second favorite moment of the book is when you break down, this is in chapter seven, which is entitled freedom. And you focus on Wherever May Roam, Wolf and Man, Unforgiven, Mama Said, Dyer's Eve, and Escape. But I loved the breakdown of Wolf and Man, which I would have said is probably top 15 deep cut for me. I really like it. Some of the stuff that you said about Wolf and Man really made me think about it differently. There's one section in the book you say, the feeling of being at home in nature is Earth's gift takes us, and you're quoting some of the lyrics, back to the meaning of life. Like tying it into this, like an evolutionary type thing that I wouldn't have really thought that James Hetfield would have been that bought into. I don't know. I just enjoyed it. And I love too how you, you drew the comparisons to Bark at the Moon. You're like, it really could have gone that way. And I'm really glad it didn't. Ozzy pulled it off. You know, this, the juxtaposition of making it too much about like, hey, I'm turning into a were- This is a werewolf story, you know? Right, right. Yeah. Ozzy pulled it off with Bark at the Moon. But that, that's just one of those things where you, even if, even when he flirts it for a moment at, with like a heavy metal cliche of a werewolf or something like that, it turns into something else, right? I mean, it's it's reflection on uh, on nature and uh, you know what you feel when when you're out there in, in the wild, and there's something healing about that, and it's something that tells us about who we we truly are. And I think maybe it was before we got started, we were talking about uh, Freud and civilization and its uh, discontents, right? And mm-hmm. just the way in which uh, we're, we're forced to conform in all sorts of odd ways. And one of the good things about the pandemic for me is I, I, I got outside a lot more. And growing up in the New York area, I was never a big outdoors kind of guy, but I, I've, I've felt it to be very healing and therapeutic just to to be outside in the, in the trees, not literally in the trees, but under trees and in the, in the green and all that. And I, I think, you know, that there's something to that in, uh, in, in uh, Wolf and Man. I did the same thing, Bill. I, I have a group of friends that have, in our friend group, have always been campers. And I was always the leather jacket wearing, guitar playing <laughs> guy that never wanted to be in the woods. And during COVID times, I think everyone was trying to find something. I got really into basketball and I got really into camping. I just started going camping with them. And for the first time, realizing how important it was to just be connected with being outside.
th- this is this part of the book where you do talk about the Freud stuff. You say in civilization it's discontents, which I can't recommend high enough. Everyone thinks Freud's all like sex stuff. This book's really not. And there's another book he wrote towards the end of his life called The Future of an Illusion that I would also recommend. Um, but this is a you say in civilization it's discontents. Freud argued that humanity pays a price for the calmness and order of civilization. That's such a huge concept that I think is borne out if you read history. You say we warp ourselves by repressing our natural desires and aggressive tendencies, which find other ways to express themselves, often come out sideways and causing neurosis. Hetfield's narrator would agree, but rather than prescribe Freudian psychoanalysis, Hetfield's narrator has a more natural cure. And you highlight this lyric, which I've never thought of, but I think it's so cool. In wilderness is the preservation of the world, so seek the wolf in thyself. And actually, if, if you look again, it's not in wilderness, it's in wildness. Wildness, that's right. In wildness is the preservation of the world, so seek the wolf in thyself. That's so badass. Isn't it? <laughs> and so and that, that's just one of those those examples where his choice of words is so subtle, right? Wildness rather than wilderness. Of course, he's partly talking about wilderness, uh, but he's also talking about what it means to be wild, both as a human being uh, and an animal out in nature. It's so good. It's so good. The next chapter is called Resilience. You talk about the Judas kiss, broken, beaten, scarred. I mean, you really cover all the albums except 72 seasons, which wasn't out at the time of the book was published. I mean, it really goes all the way from, you know, four horsemen. You, you do a little bit on motor breath all the way through. Here comes revenge confusion. Yeah. I'm a fan of it all, you know? So, I mean, I have my favorites like everybody does. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the book, as, as you've alluded to, is, isn't set out like I'll go album by album or song right. by song. And I certainly don't cover every single song. Uh, but every era, every album, uh, even uh, the Beyond Magnetic EP gets uh, some time in there. That, that's some of my favorite stuff, too. Uh, and, and it's all written from the point of view of, uh, of a fan, you know, who you know, has thought a lot about this stuff. And I, I tried to, although it's organized, uh, this conversation we're having is organized, although it's free-flowing. And I, I tried to as best I, I could capture the idea of, uh, of a conversation uh, where I'm talking a lot and I'm saying, hey, listen to me, uh, hear me out on this one. And I'm going to ramble on for a bit and I'm hoping you're thinking something too. Uh, and I'm hoping that's what the reader gets out of it. And, uh, you know, I love to hear from readers when, uh, when they do. Yeah. And if you want to get a hold of Bill, we're going to have his contact information, his socials below. You can tell him how mad you are about his... <laughs> <laughs> comments about load or saint anger that we call them the metal police you know you hear the sirens in the distance yeah. every episode i say something wrong you know but that's sure. kind of that's actually part of being in conversation too you know if we were sitting across yeah. from each other at a bar with ten thousand listeners and you you know i might get something wrong about iron maiden they're gonna tell you which you know makes me smarter it's all fine all right so the end of the book you say for me each new album is a chance to be with an old friend again my friend and I have both been worn and weathered by the passage of time, but a strong bond puts us right back on the same wavelength. My friend will start a story that sounds familiar, but just when I think, I've heard this one before, it will go in surprising directions. Sometimes my friend and I like the changes we find in each other. Sometimes we don't. Some reunions spark joy and nostalgia. Others don't. Maybe our expectations are too high or pointed in the wrong direction, but we appreciate each meeting as a bridge between our past and our future, which leads me to, what do you think about 72 seasons? Love it. Love it. it. You know, kind of for, for what it's worth, uh, I didn't like it right off the bat. Uh, I didn't like the uh, singles as they were releasing them. I thought, oh, you know, it's okay. 
And, uh, well, maybe I'm going to like the album better. The day it came out, I laid down in my hammock to listen to it, undistracted, and I fell asleep. Uh, so I didn't like it on the first listen either. But it, it over time, grew on me and grew on me. And I, I think it's, it's really vulnerable. I think it's really introspective. It is dark. It is light. I think it holds together as an album uh, better than any album since the Black Album. People, you know, the, people have their favorites and people have the, the songs that they, they don't like. And some people have said, you know, some of the songs are too long and parts could be cut. Maybe some parts could be cut. I don't know. I, I wouldn't cut a single song on that album. And the songs I didn't care for as much when they were released as, as singles now really pop for me in the context of the album. Uh, and so it feels to me like the sequencing of the tracks really works as well. I have a strangely very, very similar uh, trajectory as you. The first single I liked, I thought it was cool. Then the next ones were a little head scratching for me, Screaming Suicide and If Darkness Had a Sun. By the time 72 Seasons came out as a single, I was on this big tour and exhausted. The first time I listened to the album, I fell asleep, and I also thought, that's not great. Um, but then the album has really grown on me. It's become my favorite album this year, and the, even the songs I didn't like, I like on the album now. Yeah. I thought yeah. I was going to skip Screaming Suicide forever. I burned it down yesterday <laughs> and loved it. Listen well. You better listen well. <laughs> exactly. Well, after you write a book like this, a great book, I'm hoping everyone goes and checks it out. Are you already planning something else? Like, what's the next book going to be? You going to take a break? What's the deal? So, I, I actually, uh, after this one, I think just in terms of the pipeline of when things uh, were written, because the, the book took a while from uh, from writing its submission to publication. Uh, I published a couple of books of, uh, of poetry, which is something I had always wanted to do. This was during, uh, during COVID. Uh, I had uh, the chance uh, to do that. And I always did want to be a poet. I guess now I am, at least in some nominal sense uh, of the word. So I got two, two books of poetry that came out. And, and there's always continuing stuff in this uh, philosophy and pop culture uh, series that, that I edit. So... Staying busy. I'll put links to those in the description as well. I'm a huge poetry fan, huge poetry nerd. Oh, wow. If you ever do decide to write a book on the Load and Reload era lyrics, if I can't co-author it with you, I would at least like to help do the research. That's all I ask. If people go out and really buy this book, uh, we could interest uh, the publisher in uh, in doing something focused on Load and Reload, and it'll be uh, Bill Irwin and Clint Wells uh, co-authored. So, let's hope. Well, you heard it here, folks. Go buy the damn book. Go read it. <laughs> I mean, I'll say this, Bill. Like, I've spent the last six and a half years thinking a lot about Metallica putting out this show every Monday. And there were definitely things in the book that I had not considered. I felt like I learned stuff. And even the stuff I was more familiar with, it was just fun to read. So, everyone go check out The Meaning of Metallica, Ride the Lyrics, Bill Irwin, his other stuff too as well, The Philosophy in Metallica, Books of Poetry even. And Bill, man, thank you for taking the time to come hang out with me today. I really appreciate it. What a pleasure talking with you, Clint. Thank you. Master! Master! Bill Irwin, everybody. The book is called The Meaning of Metallica, Ride the Lyrics. You can find links to get in touch with him. His email address, his social media handles, and links to where you can purchase the books. 
all down below in the description. Thank you so much for taking the time to hang with me. I'm going to let you babies go. Enjoy your weeks. Uh, write in metal up your podcast show at gmail.com. Tell me what you think about the show, what you'd like to see in the future moving forward. Take care of yourselves. Take care of your families. Peace. <laughs>